You know the beautiful hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. It's a beautiful hymn. And I really love that the second stanza of that hymn says, What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for a sinner's gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. I don't know if there is a better way to summarize what we've been reading from Isaiah chapter 53. Because just as that hymn reminds us, and just as Isaiah chapter 53 showed us, everything that Jesus suffered, he suffered for you and for me. Everything that Jesus did, he did in order to bless you and me. And so you remember chapter 53, verse 4. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Everything Jesus experienced was for your benefit. Everything he suffered was to bless you. And so the natural and the important question that we have to ask is this. If that is what Jesus said, and that is why Jesus did what he did, then how can we honor and how can we praise him? Because what honor and what praise can possibly match the excellence of who he is and what he has done. And as we considered the question last week, we were left a little bit speechless because the honor that the Lord gives his son for suffering for his people, for dying for his people, the reward that the Lord gives his people are the very souls that he suffered and died to redeem. We... <laughs> You and I, we are God's reward and honor to his son. Now, does that make any sense to you? It doesn't. And yet, that's the mystery that we are continuing to consider today. And very fittingly, we see here in this chapter one, Isaiah now shifts the focus to the people that Jesus suffered and died to redeem, the people that are given to the Son of God as his reward and praise and honor. But on the other hand, at the same time, he shows us when Jesus receives honor to himself, part of that, and perhaps the main part of that, means blessing his people. Jesus is such a savior that when he is rewarded, he shares that blessing with his people. And so that is what we see in this passage. As we consider the people that are given to the Son of God, we see the honor, the, the blessing, the riches the Son of God shares with his people. And the first blessing 
that falls upon those who lay their sins on Jesus is that God has exchanged our shame with joy. Shame exchanged for joy. Now notice here that the Lord calls Zion the barren one who did not bear. Now Zion, now you remember from previous chapters, uh, Zion was the name of a city, and it is possible and perhaps tempting for people to equate and limit Zion to that physical city in Israel. But as we have seen, when God promised deliverance for Zion, it was a spiritual deliverance. Because Zion is not just the name of the city, but it represents all of God's elect. And what is the redemption for God's elect? It is a spiritual redemption of the Son of God and suffering and dying. And the the thing that we have to remember is that Zion, God's elect, they needed a redemption because Zion's sins have ruined her and brought desolations upon her. And so the Lord compares his elect Zion to a woman who has become a widow in her youth. You see, this woman, she had, she had dreams. She had dreams of a long life with her husband. And she had dreams and hopes of watching her many children growing up healthy and happy. But this woman is widowed in her youth. And because she is widowed in her youth, she never got to experience her dreams and hopes coming true. Her every hope is dashed. Her dreams shattered. Her husband is gone. Her house is empty. She has no children. And the only thing that she knows are shame, disappointment, and humiliation. Now, that's how God uh, portrays the spiritual condition of Zion. Zion, his elect, though they are God's elect, they have ruined themselves with their sins. Their sins, not the invading foreigners, their sins have brought desolation and ruin upon them. Their dreams, their hopes, all gone. Only thing they know now, only thing they experience was disappointment, shame, and humiliation. But then here the Lord commands, Sing, O barren one who did not bear, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. Now think about the fact that God is speaking this to Zion, his elect. But you know, Her election had nothing to do with her righteousness, and her election had nothing to do with the choice that she made to love God. You see, Zion, God's elect, Zion was thoroughly sinful through and through, and her choice was to turn from God. And the fact that they are God's elect had nothing to do with how good they were. 
or with the, the good, godly, holy choices that Zion made. In fact, you know, it took us all the 54 chapters so far to get that point driven into our hearts and our minds. Zion was sinful through and through, and the choices that she made were repeatedly and only to turn away and run from God. So God's election had nothing to do with her righteousness or choices to do, to do good or be good, but rather God's election for Zion meant that God chose her so that they could lay their sins on the Savior. God's election for Zion meant that he sent his son so that his son might be stricken afflicted and pierced and crushed for Zion so that through the ministry, the suffering, death, and the resurrection of the Son of God, that Zion might be accounted righteous. And that is what gives rise to the command, sing, sing. And enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. You know what God is saying to Zion? Wipe the tears from your eyes and let the face that is worn with care and sorrow, let that face now learn to smile. Let your empty houses burst at the seams with children, so much so that you will have to build bigger homes. How? Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. You see, Zion was left to her own self and devices and decision inclinations intentions. Zion was sinful through and through, and the only choices that she knew how to make were to run from God. But God sent the suffering servant. God sent the Savior. And because of that Savior, Zion now is no longer a widow whose hopes and dreams are dashed. But Zion now has a husband who will not and who cannot die. You know, that's almost a little bit too much on the nose, but the fact that Jesus died and rose, and that is the husband, the groom of Zion, the groom that lives and lives forever, who will not die, who cannot die, and Zion will never experience widowhood. Not only so, Although God deserted Zion for her sins, she now has a husband who wants his wife back. He calls her back. And he pledges with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. Do you see? Do you see the difference that the Savior has made for Zion, for God's elect? Before and apart from the saving work of the Savior, Zion, sinful through and through, ruined, desolate, without a hope, without a future. And all she knows and all she can ever know 
is disappointment, humiliation. But because of what Jesus has done, the time of fear is over. And because God has exchanged the shame of his people with joy. And that is why God says, sing, build. Shame exchanged for joy. Secondly, it's like Noah, but better. It's like Noah, but better. And the underlying question and the fear to which that is an answer is this. God says here in verse 8, With everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. But of course, you and I, just like the ancient uh, people of God, if only, if only we needed to hear God's word once and could believe it wholeheartedly, if only we just needed to hear God's promises once and never be shaken about it. But the ancient people of God were just like you and me. And the fear for them was, how can we really believe that God will never break his promise? How can we really know that he will never break his pledge of everlasting love and compassion? And it is to answer that fear that God says, this is like the days of Noah to me. Now you remember Noah. Genesis chapter 6, we get a summary of what the world is like, that the thoughts and the intentions of man was only evil continually. The whole world was filled with filth of sin, and God's holy wrath rushed upon the sinful world as a judgment flood. God's judgment came upon the world, and he spared only Noah and his family. And if you actually sit there and read carefully and count the days, Noah and his family end up spending a whole year in the ark. You know, we only think about the 40 days of rain. But after the 40 days of rain, it takes a better part of a year for the water to subside before they can come out and venture out. But think about this. Can you imagine what a trauma that must have been for them to see the destruction come upon the world around them, to see everything destroyed, the water covering the earth. Can you imagine how hard it must have been for them to leave the ark after a year and to build a new life away from it? Can you imagine yourself, if you were in their shoes, would you be wondering, can we really afford to leave the ark? What if God sends another judgment? What if another flood comes. Can we really trust that God's judgment is over? Can we really be assured that we will be safe? And that's when God gives them a promise. And he swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. And he gave, that, and he gave them a sign, a sign of that promise. And it was the rainbow. Now the word is simply bow, 
and because of the context, it's translated as a rainbow. But it's the same word as a bow that an archer would use. And what's happening is that God hangs a bow in the sky, but the bow is pointed skyward. It's pointed at God. And it's communicating a message. That sky-pointed bow carries the promise. If ever God breaks the promise that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, if ever God breaks that promise, then God will himself be the target of wrath. If God ever breaks the promise to his people, he will pay the price. If the covenant is ever violated, then he will be the one to suffer. That's the significance of the bow. And so the reliable appearance of rainbow after rain assured Noah and his family the reliability of God's covenant promise as long as the world endures. But here, God does one better. You see, the Lord says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. You see, the sign that God gave to Noah, the rainbow, as long as the world continued the way it is, as long as the world remained the way it is, that rainbow was a sign of the reliability of God's promises. But here, what God is saying is, even when the world, as you know it, is no more, even when mountains depart and hills are removed, even when everything that you know about the world is changed, even then, even when everything around you falls away and crumbles away, even then my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. How so? Why? Chapter 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. That's the covenant of peace, you see. And it turns out that the covenant between God and man was broken. God did not break it. Man did. But God directed a battle bow against himself. And he did not pour out his wrath upon covenant breakers, but he poured out his wrath upon his own son. And so the sin-bearing death of God's son, that is the eternal covenant of peace. God's wrath, because the Son of God, because the Messiah bore our iniquities. He was chastised because of our sins, because of that, God's wrath against our sin is forever spent. Judgment is forever over. And so we can trust God's promise with 
everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. Jesus bore our sins. And because of that, compassion is God's only and everlasting attitude towards us. Can I put it this way? It sounds wrong, but I want you to consider what I am saying. It sounds wrong to say God, to talk about God's feelings and emotions, but let me put it this way, if only to drive home the point. The only feeling that God has in his heart for you is compassion. The only emotion God feels in his heart towards you is love. That's his everlasting attitude. And that is so important, isn't it? Because you and I, we, we sin daily. And because we sin daily, we are daily reminded that God did not choose us because we were righteous or because we made a right choice towards God. But we are daily reminded that we, God's elect, we were chosen not because of our righteousness, but despite our sins. And as we are daily reminded of our sins, we have this assurance. There is no wrath in God, only compassion. And there is no bitterness in God's heart towards you, only love. And that's why we can rest every day, even as we struggle daily with our sins. Can I put it this way? There is a world of difference between knowing the compassionate, love-filled heart of God and not knowing it. Because when you don't understand that compassionate, love-filled heart of God, our relationship to God will always be like the relationship between a slave and a master. You know what a slave says when he messes up? A slave says, I messed up. My master is going to beat me. I have to run away. I have to hide from him. But when we understand the compassion and love-filled heart of God, our relationship changes from that of a slave and a master to a child and father. You see, slaves say, I messed up. My master is going to beat me. I have to run away. Children say, I messed up. My father will help me. I have to go to him. And I wonder, how do you think about your relationship with God when you are daily reminded of your sins, when you mess up? Do you say, I messed up again? Oh, he must be so angry. How can I face him? I have to go hide. Or do you say, I messed up again, <laughs> but my father will help me. Because he loves me, I have to go to him. Like Noah, but better. 
Thirdly and finally, there's beauty and glory, beauty and glory. Did you notice how the Lord describes Zion rebuilt with precious stones? Antimony, agath, carbuncle, sapphires. I had to look up some of those things to see what they are. Precious stones. But it's so important to understand that this has nothing to do with the church's financial wealth. The glory of God's people does not consist in gilded walls, ghastly ornate thrones like you see in the Roman Catholic Church, or the prosperity preachers decked out in designer clothes who built their congregations. The beauty and the glory of God's people has nothing to do with money or wealth. Rather, Zion is adorned with the beauty and the glory of the Messiah. So look at verse 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord. Now, do you remember chapter 50, verse 4? When the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. It's the same word. Here in verse 13, all your children shall be taught by the Lord. And the Messiah himself said in chapter 50, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. You see, Jesus was a disciple of God's word. And just as Jesus was a disciple of God's word, the beauty and the glory of his church is that his people will be disciples of God's word. And then look at verse 14. In righteousness you shall be established. And if you remember chapter 53, verse 11, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. As Jesus was righteous, so God's people will be righteous. Chapter 54, verse 17. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. As God raised Jesus from the dead and proved the accusations against them false. So God will vindicate his people. And so we read in verse 17, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me. So far, we've only heard about the servant in singular, the servant of the Lord. But because of what the servant of the Lord has done, we become the servants. And you notice the plural here. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me. As Jesus was the servant of the Lord, so his people are now the servants of the Lord. In other words, Zion's beauty, the beauty and the glory of God's church, his elect is not 
what money can buy. But rather, this, the beauty and glory of Zion is to become like Jesus. And I wonder if you see that that is precisely and exactly Jesus' kindness and love to us. Because you see, all that makes Jesus worthy of honor and praise in God's eyes. He was a disciple of the word of God. He was righteous. He was a servant of the Lord. All that made Jesus worthy of honor and praise in God's eyes, Jesus gives them all to us so that in Jesus we become the disciples of the word, so that we become righteous, so that we become servants. And out of Jesus' fullness, we receive measure for measure all that makes us worthy of honor and praise in God's eyes. You know, what's really interesting and maybe sad, too, is that we tend to consider these things burdens, chores, to be a disciple of God's word, to grow in righteousness, to serve. We tend to think of them as burdens that we don't want to carry, or at, if only a little better, but maybe not by much, we tend to think of them as duties, if only we could remember that they are actually blessings from the Lord to become like Jesus, to receive from Jesus all that made him worthy of praise and honor in God's eyes. And if we become like Jesus, to receive from Jesus everything that makes us worthy of praise and honor, how can we think of such things as burdens or as mere duty. Because then we would truly see them as the blessing they really are. To be like Jesus. What blessing is like it? Nothing. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Thank you, O Lord, for the amazing things you have done in our place and for us. And so we pray that we would treasure the gifts that we have received in the suffering, death, and the resurrection of our Savior, that we would count as precious the honor, the, the gifts that we have come to possess, that we should become like the Lord Jesus. And so we pray, O God, Work in us by your spirit and mold and shape us that there may truly be a beauty and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives and in this church. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.